Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we're continuing our series, God's Rescue Plan, with a message titled, God's Provision. So let's turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. What is God doing about my situation? Asks the person who's struggling with despair in a general sense that everything is hopeless. How can God simply do nothing, says the person who's beginning to doubt the good intentions of God? These dark doubts, coupled by a feeling that nothing is ever going to change, is simply wrong thinking. It it betrays a lack of faith. If our only reason for hope is because of what we see, let me say you have no faith at all. Faith expresses confidence in God even when we don't see anything hopeful on the horizon. Our hope is not grounded in this world. It's grounded in God, the God who's invisible, but the God who sees us. When we last left our study of Exodus, we saw Israel in great distress. They'd gone from a favored people status in Egypt to being reduced of all wealth and reduced to slavery. Their land has been taken from them. Our text says their lives became bitter. And what's more, their population is growing, and that excited hatred and fear in Egypt. And finally, in language that sounds like Hitler's final solution, Pharaoh decides to cull the people, killing every male child. Again, the man without faith asks, but what is God doing? And today we'll see what God is doing. He's preparing Israel in such a way that it becomes untenable for them to remain in Egypt. They're not to remain in that nation. They are to go to the promised land. As we continue to read through Exodus, we're going to see, even with all the suffering that they'd undergone, that they were unwilling to leave. See, I'm reading Exodus 16, 2 and 3, where it says, And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now, how does that statement? We ate to our hearts content in Egypt square with what we've already studied in Exodus chapter 1. That the life of every Israelite was reduced to bitterness, joy was gone, and that now they were seeing their babies murdered by the entire population. Where this mythology that Egypt was such a good place to live. But how is that different from us? As the old Negro spiritual said, this world is not my home, I'm only passing through. Or as Hebrews 13, 14 says, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And so were it not for bitterness in this life, we would not seek the city that's to come. And how we complain that God seems to be doing nothing. So let's go to our text. We've come to Exodus chapter 2, and suddenly the narrative changes from the Egyptian program of genocide against the boys to the story of one family. Exodus 2, 1 to 3. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. The chapter begins by mentioning a man and his wife without telling us their names. But we do learn their names later in Exodus 6, verse 20. The man's name is Amran, and his wife is Jochebed. But our text does tell us that this couple is from the house of Levi. 
Now, that in itself might not strike us as something important. I mean, after all, everyone in Israel is a descendant of one of the 12 sons of Jacob. And according to Genesis chapter 29, Levi was the third son of Jacob, as well as mother was Leah, the unloved wife of Jacob. But even though unloved by her husband, she was blessed by God. She had four sons in a row, while her sister Rachel had none. But there's more to the story of Levi. I mean, Levi distinguished himself in a less than favorable way. After their sister Dinah was raped, it was Levi, along with his brother Simeon, it came against the city whose favorite son had raped their sister. And the two men killed every male in that city. I mean, that action was never forgotten by their father. And so when Jacob was on his deathbed, as he pronounced words of blessing and cursing on his sons, he said this about Levi and Simeon, found in Genesis 49, 5-7. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not come into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men. In their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And indeed, that would eventually come true. That is, the tribe of Levi would be scattered among the people of Israel and not have their own allotted land. But it came true not as a curse, it came true as a blessing. Eventually, God would make it clear that the tribe of Levi was to be designated as the tribe of priests called upon to lead Israel in worship. And so in Exodus chapter 2, knowing this to be the plan for Levi, God is about to give the tribe of Levi their greatest leader, a man who would lead Israel out of Egypt, also a man who would lead Israel into worship with God. I guess what I'm saying is that, you know, we've read the first three verses of Exodus chapter 2. It's the birth of Moses to Amran and Jochebed. That was preordained. God's deliverer would come from the tribe that he had chosen. I mean, modern-day Christians just recognize this kind of language. I mean, after all, Jesus, the Savior of the world, he could only have come from the tribe of Judah. God chooses his deliverers. Deliverers don't choose themselves. Now then, Jochebed bears a son. And as we've seen, this is an immediate problem. The son's destined for death. But she won't have it. The ESV says that he was a fine child. The Hebrew literally says she saw in him that he was good. Probably means she saw that he was healthy. And like any mother, she was concerned for a child. So she and her husband must have done what countless other Hebrew families did When a boy was born to them during that time, remember, they did have midwives concerned for them, and no doubt there would have been other compassionate Egyptian families that did care. But anyone reporting the birth of a male child would mean the authorities would come and kill that child. And so like many others, they hid him. And that worked for three months. I mean, soon his crying would make it plain that Amran and Jochebed had a baby, and then with a little investigation, it was a boy, and so what to do? Our text doesn't say, if only Amran and Jochebed came up with this plan. I mean, maybe others did as well. But it does say they made a basket. They made it of papyrus reeds, the kind that grew along the Nile. They sealed the basket with bitumen and pitch. And then they hid that basket along the reeds of the Nile so that the boy wouldn't be found. Now, it's clear here that they were not hoping to sail him out of sight. I mean, that kind of a plan would have resulted in his death. It has been suggested that the basket would have been enclosed so that it would muffle the sound of his crying. And so they chose this as the place to hide him, not in their house, but outdoors away from the house. What is of some interest here 
is that the Hebrew word translated as basket, that's the word teba. It's the same word that's found in Genesis 6 to 8, where it's translated as ark, as in, in Noah's ark. And the story of Noah's ark is that it's God's protection from a flood that's going to destroy the whole world, and yet this ark would be the source of salvation for Noah and his family. And I think by calling this an ark, we're supposed to see in this story that just like in the days of Noah, God was ensuring that his people were going to be saved from what would surely be destruction. Now, the Bible isn't specific about how Jochebed was planning to keep her boy alive until he became an adult. I mean, perhaps she was going to bring him to shore every night so she could feed him and clean him and care for his needs. And then when the morning broke, the child would be again among the reeds in the Nile with the ark covered so that, you know, people wouldn't hear him crying. But what happens if he survives that and he gets older? I mean, what's the plan after that? I think it's safe to say that Jochebed was praying and asking God to show her the way. Indeed, that's what we find in verse 4. It says, And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Again, as before with the parents. At this time, the sister isn't named, but we do know her name from later. Her name is given to us in the 15th chapter of Exodus. She is Miriam. We also find out that the child also has an older brother, three years older, and he must have been born before the king's edict. His name is Aaron, and we're going to meet him later in this account, but it seems clear that Miriam is the oldest, and she's charged with looking out for her infant brother, and she watches the little ark from the shore, and indeed the text says she is to see what would be done to the child. That would seem to be her instructions from her mom. We have to imagine perhaps a six-year-old girl watching the basket from a distance. Her mother has said, see what's going to be done to him. I think what that means is see what God does for him. We're now at a place where we have no long-term plans. They're all short-term plans, but we do have a plan. We are fully in the hands of God, and perhaps God might intervene. Indeed, as Jochebed and Miriam would soon find out, God indeed would intervene, not just for Moses, but for all the people of God. Do you have any young children in your life, perhaps of your own or a grandchild? If so, be sure to check out Back to the Bible Kids, our mobile Bible teaching games for children. Choose from these games, Bible ABCs, Bible coloring, or Noah's Elephant in the Room. Every game helps kids learn more about the characters of the Bible, learn scripture and biblical truths, enjoy educational activities, all in a safe and fun environment trace color and chase Noah around the ark, all while being introduced to Bible stories and characters. It's so important that the children of God are given the opportunity to become familiar with the Bible from a young age. And we hope that the Back to the Bible Kids mobile games do just that. To download any of our Back to the Bible Kids games for free, visit backtothebible.ca slash kids. We've been talking about the assurance, even when we don't see it, that God provides for his struggling and suffering and despairing people. And while we might have expected some grand thing to occur, all we get at first is the birth of a baby boy who at the point of his birth is marked for death. And we don't have to think far to see how similar this is to the story of Jesus. 
Soon after his birth, King Herod, that paranoid and cruel king, ordered that all boys in Bethlehem be killed just so he could also murder the one who was born to be king. I I say it's mad because probably within the year, Jesus is fleeing and Herod dies. And here in the story of the birth of the boy who is born to Amran and to Jochebed, there's no place to flee. Mary and Joseph did have a place. All they have is a very crude plan with the boy's sister standing on the shore of the Nile to see what's going to happen. Is God going to intervene? And yes, he does. So I'm reading Exodus 2, 5 and 6. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. There was no attempt to place Moses, you know, at the banks of one of the places where the royal family in Egypt lived. I mean, that kind of a plan would have been sheer madness. But clearly, the little ark floated down the river and came to a bank of a royal residence. And as it happened, the daughter of Pharaoh had come to bathe in that river. And we have to imagine a platform going out to the river from the palace, you know, with a place for just such an activity. She's being attended by young women, always making sure that they're taking care of the needs of royalty. Now, we don't know who the daughter is, and some have suggested that she might have been the very famous Hatshepsut, who herself would later become a pharaoh, the first female pharaoh of Egypt. That's all speculation. We simply don't know. Her name isn't mentioned, but whoever she was, it's interesting that her reaction is not to do that which her father commanded. She immediately recognizes that this is one of the Hebrew children, and here we see the hand of God. See, we might have expected that since the basket floated to the wrong place, that the boy would die, and instead the basket floated to that one place where he would be protected. And how does she know the boy's a Hebrew? Well, for one, we only imagine that Hebrew children were being hidden. They only. It was no secret that every possible hiding place would have been used. Here's just one more Hebrew child they're trying to hide. It would also have been evident from the clothing that they used to cover the child. And it may have been that there are physical differences in appearance between Semitic children and Egyptian children. So there can be no doubt about the identity of this child. And the text says she took pity on him. Her reaction is compassion. It's, it's this thing that theologians call common grace. That is, God supplies grace to all people so that most of us don't act out of our worst instincts. But we're aware of what's right and good and decent. This is who this woman was. So let's continue to read verses 7 to 8. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. See, evidently, when the commotion of finding a baby in the river was discussed among Pharaoh's daughter and her attendants, Miriam must have wandered close by, and we can imagine what's being said. You know, he's crying. He must be hungry. We can't just leave him this way. I mean, what are we going to do? And Miriam has, with great courage, wandered up to the royal residence. And now she speaks. And everyone knows when she does, she's a Hebrew slave girl. She says, I can find a wet nurse. And at that moment, you have to imagine a pause in the action, a moment of silence. Everything now depends on this one moment. And so Pharaoh's daughter says, go. And Miriam knows exactly what to do. She goes to her mother, and in short order, 
Jochebed would be nursing her own son under the full protection of the royal family. Indeed, when Jochebed had wondered what would be done to the boy, now she knows God has intervened. And now we come to the last section of this paragraph, verses 9 and 10. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. And please notice that Pharaoh's daughter ordered Jochebed to nurse the child. And no doubt, at this juncture, all costs of raising this child would be borne by the royal house of Egypt. How we also know that as the child grew older, he was brought to Pharaoh's daughter. That is to say, Jochebed would know that she would not be raising her son. It would happen in the court of Pharaoh. And it was to happen by the daughter of Pharaoh, not his mother, that would give the boy his name. You know, we need to imagine the scene, which surely must have given both joy to Jochebed as well as it broke her heart. She would have to surrender the boy to Egyptian education, Egyptian ways of being raised, Egyptian ways of thinking. See, I remember years ago taking a tour up the Nile in which my wife and I visited a great many of the ancient Egyptian temples. We had a guide who had his PhD in Egyptology, and he was able to read the cuneiform writings on the walls of the temple and translate them to us. And it was fascinating as he explained what was written. Everything from the mundane to how to properly give birth to a child to the theology of the gods and goddesses of Egypt. Moses would be trained in Egyptian religion. You know, sometimes, you know, when the movies are made of the life of Moses, the movie makers wrongly assume that at some point in time, Moses suddenly discovered that he's actually a Hebrew. But in truth, that would never have been the case. His name Moses, which means drawn out of the water, was always a reminder that he was an adopted child. He was adopted into royalty from a Hebrew slave family. And furthermore, it would not have been lost on him that he'd been nursed by his own mother. It may also well have been the case that he had learned about the God of his ancestors. And we can only imagine what he must have been thinking as he's growing up. I mean, like Daniel, who is schooled in the occultic religion of the Babylonians, Moses was schooled in the religion of Egypt, along with all its belief systems, you know, that surrounded death and the Pharaoh's tombs. He would have been trained about how to make the journey to the afterlife and what was required to make a safe passage. Moses would also have learned from the wealth and power of the 18th dynasty. You know, in our day, Most of the wealth of the tombs of the pharaohs from the 18th dynasty, well, that's all been lost. Grave robbers have stolen everything. And furthermore, there's an irony in all of that, isn't there? I mean, the pharaohs believed that all these things were needed to get to the afterlife. Instead, all those things were needed to, you know, enrich the lives of the thieves who came to take them for this life. But one tomb wasn't robbed, and it was from the 18th dynasty. And that was the tomb of King Tut. Somehow the tomb robbers didn't find that one tomb. And we need to remember that Tut doesn't represent the richest of the pharaohs. But his tomb does contain 110 kilograms, that is 240 pounds of solid gold. It was incredible. It contained over 5,000 objects, and it's an indication of the fabulous wealth of Egypt and of her royalty. So what do we make of all that? Well, we have to imagine Moses being educated in the religion of Egypt and also being taught to believe in the superiority of Egypt along with the the wealth that he had received through his adoption. And imagine also that he remembers the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And imagine him wondering, which are my people? 
You know, the book of Hebrews gives us an amazing insight as to what's going on on the inside of Moses. Hebrews 11, 24 to 26. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. The reproach of Christ should be read, the reproach of the Messiah. That is, as Moses was growing up, as he was educated in the best schools of Egypt, as he was introduced to a lifestyle that was lavish, luxurious, more than we can imagine, a battle was going on in his mind. What should he consider the greatest advantage in life? Should it be the treasures of Egypt, or should it be the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And before those stories, the promise that these slaves had a hope. One day, God would send a deliverer, a savior, a rescuer, a Messiah. He would crush the head of Satan and bring a people unto himself. The rest of Israel continued to languish. And from the outside, it seemed like nothing but nothing was changing. But everything was changing. God was providing, not the Messiah, not now, but surely a forerunner to the Messiah, Moses, the man chosen by God, was being prepared to set the people of God free and to lead them to the promised land. See what we learn? Never despair. God is involved. God will provide. Thanks so much, John. Let me ask you, uh, does it make sense someone being willing to give up on the riches of this world only to pursue something that in the immediate would cause great suffering? Well, I think we have to put it into perspective and say to ourselves, well, let's ask ourselves whether or not we believe that what God has described for us in eternal terms is indeed true. So if you knew that you're going to live eternally, um, but that the first, you know, 75 to 95 years were going to be tough, but the rest was going to be beautiful because of the price that you paid, would not that be a worthy price to pay? And the answer is, um, yeah, from that perspective, we'd say so. But if, on the other hand, we had no perspective of the long term at all, we would never do such a thing. So I would argue that we will be able to give up everything in this world to the extent that we actually believe that the promises of God are true. Where there is faith, there is no end to the sacrifice that can be made, for we know with certainty that God who makes promises will never break promises. I think that's the answer. Thanks again, John, and remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, God's Rescue Plan, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. The Back to the Bible Canada Israel experience is a trip like none other, and I'm not the only one who thinks so. A supporter who attended our most recent trip said, listening to Pastor John teach the Bible while looking and breathing the air where the events he speaks about may actually have happened puts doubts of the authenticity of the Bible to rest. So make plans to join an intimate group of spiritual pilgrims this coming spring from April 16th to the 24th, 2023 and with an optional Jordan extension from April 24th to the 29th. 
with on-location teaching from Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld and evenings of entertainment with Laugh Against Phil Calloway and very special musical guest Amanda Stott. For more information, the trip itinerary or registration forms, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.